Hello, podcast listeners. It's Marie and Brittany from the Property Management Show and Four and Half. Today's guest, Allison Desaro from Seacoast Commerce Bank. We're going to be speaking to Allison regarding property management trust accounts, the difference between those accounts, regular trust accounts, red flags to look out for. You might think you know everything you need to know, but you probably don't. So stick around and listen. This episode is sponsored by PM Growth Summit. It is the annual conference for growth-minded property managers. Our 2020 conference is brought to you by 4 and Half Property Management Marketing Agency in partnership with Seacoast Commerce Bank, the preferred bank for property management trust accounts. The next PM Growth Summit will be in Austin, Texas from May 27 to 29, 2020. Go to pmgrowsummit.com to register. Just to get started, Allison, obviously you are the property management guru when it comes to property management trust accounts. So we're going to be picking your brain a bit and learning more about what makes that different um, or those trust accounts different from other trust accounts, mistakes that people uh, maybe could avoid and things to look out for. But just to get, uh, get us started, could you give us a little bit of a background into who you are, how you got into the property management industry to get us going? Yeah, sure. So Uh, might be a little bit more information than anyone cares to know, but I actually started at Seacoast almost 10 years ago. So early 2010, I started at Seacoast. And um, at that time, I started as just essentially a business development officer. So no disrespect, nothing super fancy, right? Not that what I do right now is super fancy, but no real focus other than just bringing deposits. And we had actually had... um, you know, quite a few property management accounts at the bank. And here's the thing about banks. A lot of banks, like business banks, for instance, they want what's called, and it's not the best word, but we, we all call them in the industry, sticky deposits, right? Because business banks all make their money on essentially lending out to customers. So you have to be able to be able to lend out to customers. You have to be able to hold a lot of deposits. So you want those sticky deposits, again, for lack of a better word, um, which, of course, property management companies bring. So I started noticing that trend that those, those companies that were already banking just by default, not because there's any specialty, but just by default, like most banks do, we were banking a couple local property management companies. And um, I started noticing that trend that they were very, very sticky. So... I actually had the um, advantage that I I actually worked for a property management company in Massachusetts years, years prior to that. So I had a good understanding of not necessarily the accounting of the accounts, but just the fact that the compliance alone on them are very tricky and that it was such a hot topic. So I kind of took it upon myself. I'd say probably for the first two to three years of my job there, it was really just about figuring out and diving deep into these accounts. It took a long time trying, not the accounts itself, but the type of account, um, trying to figure out, you know, what makes these so special? How do we make sure that all I's are dotted and T's are crossed? And who, who are we really, again, for lack of a better phrase, a phrase afraid of, right? In the industry, like uh, are the management companies just afraid of the DRE, the Department of Real Estate in their state, or are they afraid of like the regulate the regulatories on banks? For us, we want to make sure that we're meeting all federal regulations, not just what a state says. And so I started noticing more and more that a lot of the information was conflicting. So it, it took 
meeting with auditors, meeting with attorneys, um, doing a lot of dive, a lot of deep dives into FDIC rules and regulations to really figure out how to do this. And so then we created, um, you know, it grew so so quickly and and so strongly that we created a, an entire division um, related to, to this. That's really cool. So it wasn't just about uh, offering the offering the capacity to handle the trust accounts. It's about making sure that you're prioritizing the, or I guess litigating the most important things, the most important things, the biggest opportunity risks, making sure you're covering the basics instead of just kind of scratching the surface, which I think is really important because it's money and that's (laughs) something you want to handle well. Well, yeah, of course, but more importantly, it's other people's money. Yes. So whereas I'm banking somebody else's money, essentially as as a banker, I'm actually banking their clients' money. So it's like not necessarily just my client, it's their clients as well. And that's why I think it's so important. Um, You know, so much of my job, I'd say well over 50% of my job is, yeah, essentially it's sales and relationship management, but well over half of that is, is about education. Because a lot of people don't know what they don't know. You know, anybody can bank a property management company, any bank can, and that's why any bank does. I mean, I'm sure if you walked into any bank, well, I don't know, know, most banks, if they really looked through their chart of, or their corporate profile, client profiles, they would likely find that they bank a property management company. But that's not because they know how to or because they specialize in it, it's because they're a bank, and at one point the property management company needed a banker. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a a really great segue. So um, you kind of mentioned something that I think a lot of people don't put um, a lot of importance in, which is a trust account is basically an account wherein the money contained in it is being entrusted to you by someone else. Like somebody else owns it, right? A bunch of other people own it too. It's not just- Exactly. It's not three parties. It could be like three thousand, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that that concept is so prevalent. The most common type of trust account is, you know, family trust, right? Like you're in trust. The the money is meant for your beneficiaries or children, and you know, it's just held there and waiting for a trigger, right, to be released, right? And right. um, that is applicable in property management and in other realms of banking, which is like personal banking. Um, However, why do you think a lot of people confuse like the property management trust accounts with the other types of trust accounts? Like give us a a, a better idea as to like what the key differences are and why it's so confusing. Sure. Well, I'll say, you know, this was just a thought. So hopefully I'm actually saying it out loud correctly. But I think the problem is actually that that people as in bankers, for instance, or property management companies are not considering family trust accounts when they're looking at property management trust accounts. I think that would actually be the issue. And I thought just light bulb just kind of went off when you mentioned that. Um, If they had actually considered that, they would probably have a little bit more guidance on how to set this up. So what's happening in this, in the industry to kind of, you know, paint a scenario is a property management company could go to a banker and say, you know, I want to open up a trust account for my property management business. And as you mentioned, Marie, a banker's understanding, a, a typical banker's understanding of a trust account would be, for instance, a family trust account, maybe, for instance, where 
that family, you know, I'll give I'll use myself and my husband for as an example. We, you know, when we created our estate with our attorney and we had to go open up a trust account at our bank, which is not Seacoast Commerce Bank, we had all of the documentation to to basically give to this banker, which included essentially, even though it's under our tax ID number, it is essentially its own entity because the attorney drafted all of that documentation to make it look like it was its own entity. And within that, all the beneficiaries were named. And, you know, of course, several other details as well. But we have an entire binder. I think I have it right next to me, actually. We had an entire binder to give to um, the banker. So that included, for instance, a trust certification, a bunch of um, notarized trust documents. So they knew how to set that up. When a bank, when a property management company goes to a banker and says, I want to open up a trust account for my property management company, their first initial thought, the bankers, is to ask for that type of documentation if they don't really understand the property management part. They just know that it needs to be a trust account. And I'm sure that you could attest that as a former banker. When they ask for that information and the property management company does not have it, which none of them will, mm -hmm. um, then it is then what the banker essentially does, unless they're actually brave enough to admit they have no idea what they're talking about, which honestly isn't really that um, common, then they essentially just open up the account with a nickname, for instance. So let's say it was, you know, John Smith Property Management, um, that would be the legal name of business on the signature card, and then the nickname would be trust account. Mm -hmm. So the banker, or I'm sorry, the property management company owner, whomever was the broker, walks away thinking that they got a property management trust account when essentially all they got was a business checking account with a nickname. Mm -hmm. So a nickname provides zero protection whatsoever. I mean, you could essentially change that nickname tomorrow to, you know, broker's vacation fund and right. do whatever you want. There's, there's really no, um, there's no distinction between the two. Um, so that's the issue. Whereas the way that you really want to set it up is similar to a family trust account so that you have the same type of protection. Bankers don't know where to go with that. Nobody's trained on how to, you know, how to do that. Um, and I don't want to say no banker, but the majority of them. Do. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to comment on that. So yeah, you're right. Not everyone is, you know, untrained in property management trust accounts, but it's not part of the traditional training that they give to bankers. So I was in the banking industry for, you know, four and a half years. Um, and I was in retail banking. I was opening business checking accounts and I was never approached by a property management company. So my conscience is clean. <laughs> Nobody come um, after Marie. <laughs> Nobody come after me. But it alarmed me when I started working at four and a half and, you know, I would listen to these blogs and, you know, I would listen to, um, you know, talks amongst the industry about all these, um, you know, issues with audit and all that stuff. And I realized that a big reason um, there's a lot of issues is because there's a nomenclature issue. Like a trust account sounds like it's a single thing. Like, oh, a trust account is a trust account. It's a trust account, but it's not. Like there are different categories. Um, mm -hmm. And when party A, like the property management company owner goes to a bank and asks for A, um, the banker might think you're asking for B and because you're using the same word trust account, that's where the confusion happens. And then when 
you get audited or something happens, you know, that's the only time you realize it wasn't set up correctly. And um, so given that, um, how do you think property managers can um, sort of like, how, do they know? How, how would they know yeah. or what are things they can ask to ensure that the banker they're dealing with completely understands that they're asking for A and not for B? Sure. So I would say in this, we may be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here because this is actually talking more about like the risks if it's not set up correctly. But I would say, take a couple questions back to your banker. Um, I always, always recommend that you put it in writing. So via email to the banker and reference the actual account number, not the name of the account, because if the banker goes to look up the name, they might just see a name and think again, like you said, it's actually supposed to be type A, but it's actually type B. So I would reference the actual last four digits of the account number and ask a few questions. So for instance, um, a couple initial questions I would ask, I would say, if, if my, the bank were to go under tomorrow, would this account, assuming they only have one trust account or if they have several, they would put all those accounts, would these accounts, um, how much would these accounts be insured for? Um, because if they have more than 250,000, again, we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I apologize. But if they have more than 250,000 in those accounts, then if those accounts aren't set up correctly, then tax ID number wide at the bank, the entire tax ID number at the bank, no matter how many accounts they have, will only be insured up to 250,000. So I would ask that question. I would also ask um, in the event of a government entity lien or a lawsuit, a judgment, for instance. Um, would, would these accounts be subject to being frozen at the bank? Those would be the two biggest ones because those are actually the more common risks than just a failed audit. Many, many, many customers, I will tell you, go through a failed audit. I'm sorry, go through an audit at their state level and they pass at least at the trust account side. Um, and that account was not actually set up. So if, if it, wouldn't it be insured for more than 250000 Would that mean that they have the wrong type of account? Yes. Okay. And so the same goes, would, would these accounts be frozen? If the answer is yes, then you, you have the wrong type of account. Yes, exactly. And so then I would follow up with an explanation of what types of accounts these are. These are fiduciary um, accounts. They are acting as fiduciary for several beneficiaries, you know, we could be talking about a company with 10 units or we could be talking about a company with 4,000 units, but with several beneficiaries, um, the money does not belong to them and it has to be protected as if it were a trust. You know, the funny thing about this is that these, a lot of bankers do actually understand the term IOLTA. Um, Maria, are you familiar with that term as a former banker? It's been a long time. I'm so. not familiar with it, so. <laughs> well, I, well, I was just trying to use an example, so that failed. But I <laughs> are actually attorney-held trust accounts. Okay. So, like, if you are going through a lawsuit, for instance, or let's say, let's say you got in a car accident and you're, and you're suing the insurance company, that money then goes into escrow or trust with the attorney, and it's held in trust until the trust I'm sorry, until the attorney cuts the check and sends it to you after you've won your case, right? It is essentially set up almost exactly the same way. I mean, there's a little small differences, but almost exactly the same way. And a lot of bankers know what type of account that is, but they can't wrap their head around the real estate trust account part. It's just called um, different. So could you ask that? Like if you're getting 
all of these answers, like horrifying answers from your bank. Um, yeah. And you're like, you realize it's the wrong account. Could you, what'd you say? Iolta? Am I saying that right? Iolta. Yeah. It's, it's, it's I-O-L-T-A. Okay. So would you say, or could you say, um, it sounds like I have the wrong account set up. The account that I need should be similar to this. And so are you saying? To this. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. might give them a good starting point. Or would exactly. you? Or at that point, would you just just call Allison? Well, yeah, you for know? sure, call Allison. Um, <laughs> oh, that's what I tell everybody to do. Well, you know, it's funny. I actually, you know, unpaid, of course, but kind of consult a little bit with companies sometimes, and it's kind of just like by default. Of course, I want to bank everyone, right? Yeah. But actually, I take the back. I don't want to bank everyone. But um, <laughs> there are certainly companies in states, for instance, that I can't bank, right? And then I'm happy to help them try and figure it out with their banker. That's really, that's nice of you. But so at that point, if they have all these red, so let's assume for a second, they don't, they're not ready to switch banks or they, or would you say at that point, and if they're getting those red flags, should they try to get the right account set up? Or would you recommend that they find a different bank that is more knowledgeable? knowledgeable? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love that saying, if you're the smartest person in the room, leave the room, right? Or find another. If you're educating your um, banker how to set up your trust account, you're in the wrong right. bank. Fair exactly. point. And that's that I would say, I always suggest asking those questions. If, if somebody, you know, to me, moving banks is not a big undertaking at all, but that's easier for me to say because I move companies over every week, time. right? Yeah. So that's easy for me to say, but it's really not that hard. It's not like a software change, for instance. But a lot of people are hesitant to do it, or maybe they're hesitant to do it because maybe they've had like a 30 year relationship with their bank, who knows? So if, if initially they are really just, all they care about is ensuring that they are you know, compliant and they're not really worried about like you know, the credits or anything like that, um, then I would say ask those initial questions. I would only take it so far though I wouldn't, you know, like you said, try and teach the banker exactly what they need to be doing. I would take it only as far as you feel comfortable with. If they're coming back and they're saying, no, let me look into it, and they feel like they get it right away. And again, I really think it's important that you're talking to like maybe a chief risk officer, someone high enough up in compliance, not just a new accounts person at the branch level or branch manager who can answer these specific questions for you and put it in writing. Um, then I would be comfortable with that if I were a property manager. But if you're then essentially like waiting months and months and months for them to come up with answer or ask more questions or, you know, say, yeah, 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 we got it. Then I would, if they said, yeah, yeah, we got it. I would follow up and say, what exactly do you have? But if in writing going too long, then I mean, I think, you know, to be very candid and I'm just a very candid person, maybe. Maybe it's, maybe it's the Boston me in me. I don't know. But, um, I kind of think it's a no brainer, you know? Yeah. Um, I think why wouldn't you in such a risky industry, especially when it comes to managing other people's money, why wouldn't you want to be with someone who knows it in and out? Yeah. Um, why know, wouldn't a, you look for someone better? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people who pretend to know it. There's, believe me, there are quite a few people out there who pretend to know it, but when it comes to, you know, like really digging in and getting all of it um, set up right, then you'll find out, you will certainly find out sooner or later that it wasn't set up right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we kind of talked about sort of like the things to look out for. Um, 
when you're trying to figure out if your accounts are set up correctly. And you mentioned that we were kind of getting ahead of ourselves. So um, do you want to spend some time digging through like the actual regulations that affect property management trust accounts and sort of like the common pitfalls that people um, encounter? Yeah. So first and foremost, my biggest, um, I'd say preach, I would say is that everybody, and I may have already mentioned this part, but everyone is afraid of these audits, right? So I talk to people all the time. I talk to people all the time who say, yeah, you know, I passed an audit or, or, you know, I like California, for instance, I don't only bank in California, but it's certainly my largest territory because of our um, locations. So they get audited all the time, right? Mm -hmm all the time. And in many states, they like, you very rarely get audited. Like Texas, it's like you get audited if there's an investigation. But in California, for instance, there's audits all the time. And in California, people say to me all the time, you know, yeah, I was audited a couple of times and I was fine. That the only benefit to that is that they were audited a couple of times and it was fine. That is really it. So I always say to them, you know, well, let's talk about the other risks that can happen besides a failed audit that actually happen more often sometimes. So again, like if there were a government entity lien or, or a lawsuit that they, you know, they owed money on, um, that's obviously lawsuits are very prevalent in the property management industry. If that were to happen and a letter of intent to lien came down to the bank for that tax ID number, the bank can essentially look at those those accounts and let's say that that bank had an uh, operating account and let's say they had a client trust account which is where all the rents and um, operating property operating expenses go through and a security deposit trust account if that first account didn't have enough funds to cover that um, lien then they can then go to the other accounts and if those accounts are not actually set up as trust and the bank doesn't even really also understand what they're intended for then those accounts then can then be subject to um, being frozen because they need to freeze the funds under somebody's tax ID number right? under this person's tax ID number and just because trust accounts are set up under your tax ID number doesn't mean that you're you know you're liable for them if they're set up correctly yeah so I actually know somebody who this happened to, don't quote me on the time frame. I want to say it was like maybe 2013 or something. Um, they were not a customer of ours. They are now, <laughs> but um, they, excuse me, I'm catching cold there, but they, um, the bank that they were with, I don't want to say the bank thing, the bank that they were with, that company had owed some back taxes for franchise tax board. And essentially they were audited by, not by the DR, they just, they were audited and they ended up owing extra taxes and whatever, they didn't end up paying it and they were, they, um, the franchise tax board issued an intent to me. And those trust accounts were frozen. So not all of the money, but a good, a, a portion of the money based off what they owed. They didn't even go to the, the operating account first, the business operating account. They just went, they straight, went straight for it. Because it's the biggest account, probably. Yeah. So there, so they didn't have to worry about like freezing the, you know, part of one account and part of another. Because there was no difference on their end, essentially. Like they're just like, okay. So, um, so those funds were frozen. And when they went back to them and explained to the banker or, or not even just the banker, someone high enough up, they under, they then understood what it was intended for. 
but it, nothing was, no changes were made. They then just understood what they were intended for. So that, um, that client, my now client, had to then go in front of a judge to basically prove that those funds belonged to them. And, you know, at that point, yeah, okay, now you've gotten the money back several months later. You've yeah. gotten the money back, but these clients are now gone, essentially, right? Right. So, so very detrimental to your business. So it's not just about losing other people's money. Obviously, if you lose other people's money, not only are you going to be held liable, but then you're going to lose your business, right? Or right. lose a good portion of it. And your probably your reputation because everyone in this industry talks to everyone. Um, which is a blessing. Well, it does happen. I mean, like, I, mm-hmm. I've i heard stories of it happening. It doesn't happen. All, hopefully, it doesn't happen all the time. I mean, you would know more more than we would, but I, I feel like probably yeah. more than we would expect. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it, it doesn't happen. It's not like it happens, like, once a year if, that I've experienced. But, you know, there's so many different management companies out there, whether they bank, whether they bank with me or not, right? So right. Other people. Um, but that is, I would say that's actually more common than a failed audit, like lawsuits and, and yeah. lien. Um, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, another one, which is, I actually have a, a horror story for that one too, but, um, another one for instance is lack of FJC insurance. So we talked a little bit about this. So this in the last like six, seven years started being more of a hot topic because. What in, in Allison, what was that lack of what? FDIC okay. Insurance. okay. Okay. FDIC insurance. Yeah. 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 yeah so, we did. Yeah. So, okay. So the FDIC insures a tax ID number at the bank. And that's very important to mention that it's a tax ID number because no matter how many accounts you have at the bank, if it's set up under one tax ID number, which is how most property management companies set up their trust accounts, most, um, and that's definitely the industry trend, how you, you really should do it. But the no matter how many accounts they have set up, um, that one tax ID number is insured up to 250000 So if a company has a million two hundred fifty thousand in um, deposit or balances at their bank and it's compromised of, comprised of um, their business operating, maybe a payroll account, and then maybe, let's say, two trust accounts, assuming that those trust accounts are just set up as essentially regular business accounts and not really trust accounts, then only 250 of that is insured. So if the bank were to go under, for instance, which we all know has happened, mm-hmm. and when I started getting into the industry, it was happening left and right um, from the, the most recent crash back in 2000 2009, um, then those funds are now essentially lost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if those trust accounts, though, and this is very this is exactly like a family trust account, how this family trust account set up, right? But each beneficiary within a family trust account, so my husband and I have that trust account and our sons are beneficiaries, each beneficiary is insured up to 250000 as if the account was set up in their own name, in their own tax ID number. But again, it has to be set up correctly as a real trust, right? So the beneficiaries in this case on the trust accounts are the owners. So 250 per owner. And it is very, very rare. Like I will tell you in my like decade of being at Seacoast Banking uh, property management companies, I had one company come to me and say, this client has more than 250,000 in their, um, in our trust account. And that was because the client was going through a divorce and they wanted to, um, 
money in the account, some extra money in the account. So it's very rare that they have, because essentially if you're getting that high, the owner's going to want a distribution. Yeah. So with that said, it is an aggregate number. So if that, let's say, go back to that scenario with those trust accounts, right? If that one trust account has, um, or let's say, yeah, let's just stick to one trust account to make it easy. <laughs> let's say that one trust account has a million dollars in it. There have to, has to be at least four beneficiaries disclosed. So the, okay. the bank should have the information on the beneficiaries. It is an aggregate number. So essentially, if the FDIC came in and looked at, you know, during a bank closure and looked at the account and said there are there's a million dollars in this account, are there at least four beneficiaries? Yes, we have that on record. Then it would actually go back to you to you as a property manager to um, then show immediately based off of usually your reconciliation reports in your software that no one beneficiary within that account has more than 250000 So, and then you're, you're free and clear. But again, assuming the accounts are set up correctly. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so uh, a company that I know, I, he, he only recently started working with me a couple years ago. Um, he actually, we were talking about this one day and he said, you know, that's funny, that actually happened to me. And I can't remember the year that it was. It was around 2008, 2009. He was with a bank in Texas and the bank went under and he lost all of those funds because the FDIC said not set up correctly. So he, he got to keep 250,000 and I don't need 250,000 in total. Who knows what part of his trust is on Right. And he did end up, he was, so it's a little bit of a success story. So I don't want to, you know, send everyone, you know, terrified, but it was a little <laughs> bit of a success story in the sense that he was able to work with the FDIC investigator or representative, I'm not even sure of the correct term in that scenario, but um, work with them to prove that that money didn't belong to him. But it, he, it took several months to get the money back and it was extremely cumbersome to go through the process with them and you know have them basically do, base, essentially do a forensic audit on all of the accounts to ensure that it really didn't belong to them and they weren't you know, using those personal funds. Wow. Well, and I feel like that process probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the people that go through that process to give you the funds back probably have a lot of other things that they're working on too. So is it like, I don't know. Maybe he had a personal connection. I don't know. It's just like, it's (laughs) not. Actually, he did say that he had, he had a personal connection. So he was very, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, so I might yeah. speak a little bit out of turn, but I think that he had like a, a personal connection with the banker or the president of the bank who got him with the FDIC um, representative right. who was handling the um, receivership. And how, so how long, do you remember how long that process did take? I don't, he told me several months. Okay. And how, like, he... I'm sure he lost clients. Yeah. It was so a, even success. like, even though it's kind of like a success story, yeah, it's I kind of like, back, but it's just, yeah. that's, this is scary stuff though. It's, it's crazy how, how important this is, but how misunderstood it is, how misunderstood and how like likely it is that you could be making a mistake and, and not know, um, and think that, think that you're okay. Cause you got audited twice or whatever. Um, yeah but that's not even the biggest risk. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, you know, again, like another quick, quick story. I was just talking to someone um, from, oh my gosh, 
like uh, Delaware, he reached out to me, wanted to bank with me, and we were talking. We somehow got into this discussion about trust. Well, not somehow, but that's basically all I ever talk about. But we got into the conversation about trust accounts. Um, and he said to me, you know, there's no um, requirements um, on trust accounts in the state of Delaware, so I'm good. And that honestly, those comments I hear a lot and they irritate me more than anything else because like, I cannot stress enough. I don't really care what your state says. If you're right. set up correctly, you're going to pass a state audit with fine colors anyway, at least in that regard. But if you don't set these funds up as trust, whether your state says that you need to or not, which just, hold on, I will also clarify before anyone from Delaware gets me, they do have rules on that, which is not a my understanding. But if no matter what your state says, those those funds still have to be protected because they don't belong to you. So yeah. whether you're in property management or not, you're acting as fiduciary for somebody else's money and you have to protect it. Yeah, and that's interesting because um, a lot of times when property management company owners set up their businesses, they have a billion things to think about. They have to make sure that their company is filed correctly. You know, they have the correct um, tax ID number, and then they have to figure out the accounting. And then a lot of times it boils down to like having a checklist, right? Like I have the checklist on how to do all the stuff. One of those items is to create a trust account. And then a lot of times they're like, well, do I need to have it according to the audit? No, then, okay, I'd rather like run off to do something else. But what they're failing to understand is it's not, the audits are there, not because they just want to hassle you. The audits are there to actually protect an industry, right? Yeah. And so even if your state says, hey, um, we're not really strict with how you set up your accounts, you have bigger fish to fry, it doesn't mean you don't have to do it. It yeah. just means maybe they haven't encountered as much issues with that specific checklist item as the other stuff. That's why they're not putting emphasis in the audits. But you as a business owner, you still have to figure out like, okay, I'm still an entity that can be subject to lawsuits and whatnot. So I have to protect myself. Your reputation, like Allison was saying earlier, it's just, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, and you're you're right. Like it, you that's right. Like it, it is. It's a lot, and it's like a checklist, especially when they're forming their management company, right? Um, or if sometimes if they're being forced to change bank accounts for there are several reasons why that might happen, then sometimes they're like, oh, let's just get it done because they're just that they have to move quick, and and they just want to just be able to give everything to the banker and just say get it done, right? Yeah. But I think. I think it's getting, a, to, I think people are starting to get a little bit more, especially, you know, at least in this industry, but most of the time, they're not really concerned about like whether the banker is a specialist in these accounts or not, because they don't really know, again, how it comes down well, to yeah. they don't, don't know, and that's why I think it's important to educate them. Um, right. For you know, me, somebody that's not in the banking industry or that hasn't been, hasn't been ever, I wouldn't know. I mean, hope I would like to think that I would do my research, but it's still, you, I would hope that you talk to a banker and they would say, oh, no, 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 that's not my area of expertise, but that clearly isn't the case because they don't even know that it's not their area of expertise. Exactly. They don't know what they don't know. I mean, bankers, not a lot, but I've certainly had bankers contact me in the past um, to say, you know, like, can you kind of, can you give me some um, instruction on how to open these accounts? 
And I mean, honestly, no, I'm not going to dig that. I'm not going to dive that deep into it. I'm not really going to teach someone else how to do my job, but it is, it's, I honestly feel like, you know, even if I sat here today and tried to train a banker on how to do it, it would, uh, we wouldn't get this done in one day. Yeah. It's not a tutorial. It's not like a video. That's true. Yeah. Kind of, you know, as a side note, it's kind of one of the things that I'm, I'm not kind of, it is one of the many things that I love about Seacoast. You know, when our CEO came in, don't quote me on this year, I think he came in in 2008. Oh, I don't know. Um, but anyway, when he came in, he essentially, he completely turned the bank around and from like a small community bank to um, a business bank. And he essentially said, you know, we're going to make this a specialty bank and we're going to, which is the best thing that he could have done. This is what he did next. He essentially said like, we're going to hire industry specialists and have them do what they're good at. Right. So our bank is a little bit different in the sense that like, if you come to me for a loan today, I'm not, I'm not the person to talk to you about a loan. I'm going to give you to somebody else. I will be your biggest advocate and ally when it comes to the loan because I hear my client but I stick just to what I'm good at. I don't try and like stretch my arms out and do everything else. And we're, we're very much like that. You know, we have SBA industry, we have obviously property management, we have 1031, we have HOA, which is actually much different than property management trust accounts. Um, and we all just stick to what we're good at because, and that's what makes us really successful. Um, and I think that's really important for property manager, for instance, or somebody in those other respective industries to ensure that you're with a specialist, because that's going to contribute to your success as well. We can, you know, we can kind of brainstorm together on not just trust account setup, but other things as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, an analogy came to mind as you were talking about that. Um, when you go to the doctor, you have a primary care doctor who's a generalist, like knows a little bit of everything. And then if something goes wrong, that's kind of like outside a box. They're like, they know enough to be able to direct you to the specialist for that area. Right. And so, right. Like if you need surgery on, on something, you're not going to go to your primary care doctor and say, Hey, can you operate on, on me? The doctor would be like, I am not a surgeon. Like, do not, I'm not going to open you up. And it's the same, like, um, it, as you were saying, right? Like most, most banks are set up to accommodate businesses period. Mm-hmm. And most banks don't have like specialists inside the branch who understand a specific industry inside and out. They may have higher up, right? They're the ones creating the products. But if you walk up to a a banker in a branch, they may know a little bit about different businesses, but that's mainly from experience dealing with customers. But like, trust me, I I went to banker training and, you know, I, I knew a little bit about many things, but I would not say I was an expert in creating business accounts for a property management company versus you know, a smoothie company versus, you know, so, um, I think that's just something to keep in mind. Like if you have a long-term relationship with your family banker, right? Like then you can feel comfortable asking these questions and hopefully that banker is comfortable to admit whether he, she is not that familiar with how you need this set up. But yeah, I just wanted to share that little insight. That makes sense. Um, so going back just a second for the people that have kind of figured out that they don't have the right account, 
Um, you you have you did mention earlier that it is pretty easy to transfer over to a new bank. Like, what would you do to initiate that process? Like, it. Yeah. So, I mean, I can only speak from the Seacoast end. Yeah. Um, bank has different requirements. We like Seacoast. Yeah. <laughs> in regards to the um, account setup. But, um, and, and all I mean by that is like any account setup, whether you're a property manager from here or anyone, essentially you still need entity documentation, right? So right. Um, the very first thing, of course, first step, get a proposal, talk to the banker about, you know, we're now not just talking about trust accounts. You also want to know what the other benefits are. So start there. Um, if they want to make the switch, then you have to really come up with a transition timeline. That's what I do. So I always say to everyone, okay, we'll talk a little bit about you know, if they came to me, for instance, and they said, uh, saw the proposal, everything looks great, um, you know, want to move over as soon as possible. Where are we now? We're uh, December, right? We're in the first week of December. So really, we're going to create a, a timeline based off of the first of a month. Um, really, December to January 1st is really not, a, a, um, it's not that it's an unreasonable timeline, but um, it's, you're kind of, you're kind of pushing it a little bit too much because the only reason we talk about the first of a month is because we talk, we we're talking about the date, the red cycle that we want to be live for, but you really have to be live and transitioned and set up and operating from those accounts about a week to two weeks prior to that. So really that's why we kind of pushing it to be in December 2nd, say, tell me on December 2nd, you want to be live for January 1 because we're really, we're going to have to get you live within two weeks. And the bank part is not that hard, but you, we have to work with your software company. So we have to make sure that everything is set up for payments. Payment processors with software companies typically take, depending on which software it is, um, typically take anywhere from like three business days to sometimes 10 business days. And yeah. that's difficult in of itself. And that with all the respect to all the software companies, and I have such great relationships with them, I, I love most of them. Um, it can always get, you know, the bank change. And again, the reason for this is because the customer may not be communicating what they need correctly to the software company, but sometimes that gets held up a little bit. So 10, 10 15 days is tough. Um, so essentially, and I kind of went off track there, but essentially if somebody is saying to me today, they want to go live work, we will likely, unless there was a specific reason to rush, we will likely just to make it easy for them, be focusing on a February one transition and um, choosing a date for that. So for instance, let's say they do their owner draws on the 10th. They would basically do their owner draws um, on the 10th of January and then we would do the final switch over mid-January. Let's just say, I obviously don't have a calendar in front of me. Let's just say it was January 15th. And we would do the final switch over that day, which includes many things such as um, mid-month reconciliation and, um, you know, uh, doing the final switch within the software as well. But that is like the end day, right? That's like the final live day. We have to essentially during our transition timeline talk, pick that day and then work backwards from that. And working that backwards from that is really just, first of all, the bank doing our job, right? Like collecting entity documentation, collecting signature cards and agreements and setting up the accounts. Um, and then we, um, we actually do a lot of stuff on the background, but we, we then work with you, the property management company, to communicate the correct information to the software company so they have more than enough time to get these accounts ready so that on, for instance, January 15th, 
we can do the final transition day and we can do it smooth and you're done at that point. Then at that point, you're operating out of your new bank accounts, not just from the bank, but also through your software. Um, and you know, you're ready for that early, um, early rent cycle. So a lot of times, even though we focus on the first of the month for a rent cycle, a lot of times, um, tenants pay early. So they may be paying on like the 27th of the month and you want to be laughing for that. So we have a small window in a month based off of the, first of all, the industry timeline in general, which is pretty standard. And then also when those companies do their owner draws, that's always important because some companies do them on the 10th, some do them on the 26th, right? So it's really very customized to the client. Um, but we go through that whole transition timeline based off of their needs, um, industry needs, also like vacation needs, you know, um, schedule and just making sure it works. I mean, like for instance, January is a tough time for property management companies to make a switch. And that's because they're working on 1099s. So they're slammed, right? It, I always say it's really like a bank switch to the right bank, right? A lot of banks will just be like, will just say like, sure, here's your, here's your account numbers and here's a check scanner and figure it out. They have no idea when you're moving, how you're moving, who you're working with to make a move. They have no idea. But we create that timeline so that you know exactly what you need to do. And even though we're stretching it out from like sometimes 30 days or 45 days from the beginning of the conversation, um, it's really only takes like, it's really only takes up like three days worth of the property management company's time of work. It's just a matter of making sure you do very specific things on very specific days. Yeah. That's interesting because, um, as you were saying, as you were describing the whole process, well, you started that with, oh, it's not that hard, you know, this is what we do. And then you started going off and describing the timelines. And I started palpitating. I'm like, this is so much stuff to remember. <laughs> Did you say this is so much stuff or yeah. so much tough? Stuff. Okay. Stuff. I thought she said so much tough at first. I'm like, yeah, girl, it is so much tough. <laughs> It is. I can't speak English. <laughs> it, it is it's so making me I thought you were speaking my language, but you were. And so, and, and so imagine if you're right, if you did switch to like a bank that didn't really understand your industry, yeah. you open your bank accounts, they have you send the signature cards, you have your checks, you have your new account numbers, and then you're alone kind of figuring yeah. out, okay, yeah. when do I deposit what? Like Your everyday bank is not going to know all of those things that you listed yeah. out. So yeah. I think just that in itself is a prime example of the reason you want to make sure that you go either start with or move to a bank that knows the industry. Because yeah. I, I know, I mean, a property manager, of course, could sit down and take the time to map out all of those things. But like, you know, either you or Marie just said, it's like, that's another task at hand. Like yeah. another thing on top of the stuff that you're doing. Why not just talk to somebody that knows all of those steps? That's just a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, then you have to like question whether or not you're actually doing it right. Because you're just right. Kind of what did I miss? Yeah. You're just kind of figuring it out as you go along. It's so funny because like, you know, again, obviously – I'm in sales, right? That is the job at yeah. the end. Um, and I've been very successful at that, but I have noticed that the sales, I guess, process has shifted for me in the last, 
probably like five, four or five years. Whereas now, like a lot of companies are calling me. Yeah, they know what we do on like the credit side and they love that. But a lot of them are now calling me for the education part, you know, like, okay, tell me what do I need to be know? What do I need to know? And during that conversation is essentially when they say, I'm just moving to Seacoast. <laughs> it's like, it's like, okay, fine. You know, great. Um, but it's really just all about education. And if you need to call, if you're calling a banker and they're just like answering your questions, like, yes, yes, yes. And they're saying that they know your industry. I don't want to say that they don't, but anyone can say yes. Like, can you yes. really sit and have a conversation with not just your banker, any of your vendors and talk about property management specifics when it comes to their, you know, their services. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what this says about me, but I could talk about property management assessments all day long. So I'm like, <laughs> I find it very interesting and I love it. And um, I'm not that boring. I do like other things too, but I- You're not could, boring at all. I could, I just, you know, let's, we could talk all day long about it. Yeah, that's great. And so we had been talking um, a lot about the compliance side mm -hmm. of property management, banking. Um, and then you started talking about how you would get phone calls from people initially asking about the credit. So oh, just yeah. for the benefit of our listeners, do you mind sharing more about what those credits are, what you can do with those credits? Yeah. And like yeah. what it would look like, I would say what it would look like at an, in a normal trust account versus like a trust account with Seacoast. Sure. Okay. So this really doesn't, the credit part really doesn't have anything to do with trust accounts, just to be okay. very, it's not specific, to, it's not specific to trust accounts, but the reason it's why just it's a specific to the bank account in general. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It, it's a bank, it's an, it's a bank program. So like, you know, four and a half could be earning credits. Like it's not, right. it doesn't have to be trust accounts, but the reason why trust accounts see such a benefit from it is because the trust accounts are the ones that are holding not just a significant amount of money, but the money is staying there, right? Yeah. So especially with those security deposits, the money's sticky, right? I mean, essentially, yes, you have rents and they come in and then they go right back out. Um, but the average over the month with the security deposits give them a very high monthly average. Yeah. Like That's security deposits, reserve funds, is that factored exactly. into that? Okay, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, um, okay, so any bank can offer this program. It's called analysis banking. Many banks choose not to, um, especially these days when rates are just low. Um, and, and many banks um, do, but it is just not beneficial to the customer at all. So, so maybe they, if even some will market it and some won't, right? So um, essentially analysis banking allows all of your accounts together. So let's say, let's go back to that example that we talked about earlier, that one company who has um, two trust accounts, a payroll account and an operating account. Mm -hmm. All of those accounts, while they remain separate, all of those monthly average balances work together into what's called a master analysis, right? So let's say, just for conversation purposes, let's say that there was a million dollars in monthly average balances. That million dollars is going to work with a rate. The rate calculation against the average balances is exactly like if it were an interest bearing account. So if you're earning 1% um, interest on a uh, million dollars, the calculation is exactly the same as if it were a 1% analysis rate against your average collected balances. But the, here's the difference. And that, that comparison interest versus analysis essentially ends here. But let's say that that 
credit, that's your gross credit, maybe, you know, if we're talking about the interest comparison, then your interest, right? With an interest bearing account, you're just given that interest. You don't need to offset anything, you're just given that interest. With analysis credits, that quote unquote interest, but really what we call a gross credit, has to first go towards all your bank fees at the bank. So that's like any transaction that you might come across that the bank actually charges for. So a lot of people, you know, come from like free small business checking accounts, for instance, and they kind of freak out at that, that one comment. They then say, well, I don't pay any bank fees now. Well, if I didn't have a good analysis program, I'd say, stay where you're at, or let's put you in a free small business checking program, but I have a fantastic analysis program. Um, so the difference here is even though you're getting charged essentially for each transaction that you do at the bank that we charge for, that's important to note because a lot of banks will charge for things that, that other banks don't. Um, but if you're being charged, if you're earning a gross credit, that gross credit after offsetting those fees, if you have excess left over, now you've essentially earned a net credit, which kind of like interest, but we can't pay it to as interest. We can't call it interest. Um, but that net credit can be paid towards third-party invoices. So like, for instance, four and a half invoices, right? So like we now, we, this, is, uh, this is recent, I don't know how many of uh, the industry, how much of the industry knows this, but um, we now can pay four and a half invoices. Um, they're now considered eligible invoices. Other eligible invoices, more common ones would be like software or like CPA invoices, something banking, accounting related. Um, but when the thing is, is that the difference between, you know, um, hold on, let me back up. Sorry. But with those credits, here's the thing, even though we're paying those invoices, we can't reimburse you because then it's considered interest. We have to pay directly to the vendor. That's it. Like if, if it touches your hands at all, it's considered interest. And then there's many other, um, you know, requirements to the account, federal regulation requirements, not just, you know, bank requirements or industry requirements um, and reasons why we can't, we shouldn't be paying you interest. But essentially you now not only offset your bank, your banking, so you essentially do still have free banking, you're now earning that net credit after that. So now the reason why it's so different compared, you know, depending on which bank you're with is really just because banks charge for different things, right? So the nice thing about our, um, analysis program is not only do we have a great rate, but we have such minimal pricing. And I always say, you know, analysis banking is really smoke and mirrors. And I'm just, like I said, I'm a very candid person, but, um, so I try to be as transparent as possible, whether it's going to benefit us or not. But and, and really the reason for that is just because with like hundreds of clients, you really don't want to like mislead someone and then have a big headache. Right. So not, not only for the client, but for the me as well. So um, I always say smoke and mirrors because any banker can say to you, hey, you know, I'll pay you one and a half percent on your balances. And that sounds great in, in, you know, a great climate like this. But with analysis, you have to first offset those fees. So really, the more important question is, what am I going to be charged for? Mm-hmm. And so you want to see like an exact mirrored um, pro forma, I should say, of like what you currently do at your bank and what they are going to need to offset before giving you that net credit. Because if your gross rate is one and a half percent, what is the net rate? No one really cares about the gross rate because 
you're going to have transactions, right? It's not like you don't have, especially in this industry, there's always transactions at the um, account level. So we not only have that great rate, but our pricing is so, so, so minimal. And on top of that, we don't even charge for many of the things that other banks do charge for. So like if you were looking at like Wells Fargo analysis, for example, they're, but they're, they're consumer banks, so they're a little different, but their analysis program is like page after page after page of charges. Um, and so it's also hard to compare our, um, like our performance, for instance, to others, because if like they were just copying ours, then they would just see what we charge for, but they could easily be charging for other things that would actually apply to you, but they don't know that because they don't have that information exactly. um, off the analysis statement. So anyway, so we, I always say like, again, back to that word no brainer, right? Like it's sort of a no brainer. You're not only going to get that compliance benefit, but you're going to get this monetary benefit as well. And almost every state allows the, the um, analysis benefit. Uh, the only state that, well, it's not that they don't, but they ask that you disclose it and we provide the disclosure information um, is California, actually. So California just says that you cannot, um, for instance, the company can't earn uh, interest off the trust accounts or like you can't earn credit card benefits for instance, credit mm -hmm. card forms without disclosing it. So as long as you're disclosing it, you can do it. And I've spoken to the DRE. We have it in writing. We have approved verbiage. I've um, seen the letter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we give the verbiage um, to them to put into their management agreements, and then they're solid, and they can go move forward and collect money and offset their bottom line. So again, compliance benefit, monetary benefits, it's pretty much a no-brainer to me. Yeah. Do those credits expire ever? Well, well, you're talking to me, right? I can't speak <laughs> for other banks. I could, again, everyone treats their analysis differently. Um, we actually do, we, we allow each uh, month, monthly balance rollover. So for instance, if you had $2,000 available in credits and we paid $1,000 to four and a half and $500 to Appfolio, for instance, and you have $500 left over, that will roll over to the next month. We do not allow deficits to roll over. So if, for instance, we paid, you got a four and a half, a thousand, and Apolio 500, but you only had a thousand dollars available in credits, we're going to charge that $500 deficit to the operating account the first of the next month. When we ask you to use all of your leftover credits, whatever your carry forward is, when we ask them to use them all before they drop down to zero, is right now, actually. So like tonight, I'm going to send out a blast email to all yeah. Plus clients, which is going to create a storm, like it does every every year year end. Everyone wants to know what their credits are. Um, but basically, just saying, hey, we need all of your invoices by twelve twenty. That's going to be our date. It's always the third, second or third week of December for us. And you have to use your credits year to date um, from November, from your November statements. So anything you earn in December will go to January. Okay don't actually calculate until the end of month. So those will come in January, but anything carry forward after November has to be used by 1220 in, you know, in 2019. Um, and then it resets to zero and they start, they start over. But that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So tonight that email will go out and it always starts like weeks of everyone just saying, oh, so can you check my credits? Can you? <laughs> <laughs> we'll and probably I, get a couple emails too. I feel like I, I don't know if it's 
happened this year yet. Maybe people like prepping. But I remember last year, there were at least a handful of people that were like, hey, I need to use my Seacoast credits. Like, yeah. sign yeah. me up for all this stuff. And oh, we're we like, oh, we're like, yes. Us. Yeah, last yeah. week of December almost. Or close, like second to the last week, like, hey, what what can I buy? What can I buy from you guys? And we're just like, um, why? Like, I need to use my <laughs> or, credits. Or we're like, you have everything, but... <laughs> Yeah. I love that. That makes me so happy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot of, you know, getting creative and a lot of processing and, but. Yeah. But um, use them up. Again, because, you know, it's, um, it's not my job to make sure you don't use your credits. I want to encourage you to see the benefits and, you know, not leave anything on the table. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, it's good too, that you shared about you working with the DRE because, um, we had gotten, you know, some, yeah, people do ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. Some questions about like, Hey, like, I don't think this is legal. And I'm like, it's Allison. Pretty sure it's legal. (laughs) Believe me. I like try to avoid headaches at all costs. So like, I just don't, if it's, if I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for something down the road, I try and avoid it at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's awesome. Um, well, any, any closing statements from you? Anything you think that like you want people to know? You know, we talked a lot, um, about like risks and things like that. Um, there's so many other, I would say like red flags, but we would, it would take us like days to dig into it. <laughs> so I would say, yeah, I mean, be very vigilant. If anyone wants to discuss this further and really dive deep in on a specific level, as in like their accounts and their bank and the history of their bank or whatever it may be, um, just reach out to me and I'm happy to talk. Of course, I'm happy to talk. Um, but, you know, I just think it's, I think the most important thing is that everyone stays really vigilant and, and starts taking this more seriously. Um, doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't matter if, um, you know, not the auditors get it wrong all the time. That's not what I'm trying to say, but it doesn't matter if, for instance, your state entity thinks that you're okay. If something like those more common federal risks or what I would call them. If those happen, your state auditor is not going to come in and save you. Um, So just do it for yourself and just because same reason I do try and do everything, you know, well, because I I don't have a headache and you guys, you know, the property management companies I know certainly don't want it because they certainly have enough. Right. Um, So um, yeah, just, just try and get ahead of it. Pick a time and get ahead of it. It sounds like it's a big undertaking, but um, you'll feel good after you do. Yeah. Awesome. Very good advice. Um, I think I'm excited for people to watch this. I think they'll they'll get a lot out of it. So we really appreciate you educating us. I, I learned so much too. And I'm always, I mean, always learning more every time I talk to you. So I really appreciate okay. it. Yeah. Thanks with you guys. This was great. I hope I didn't talk too much. Um, but yeah, reach out if you have any questions. And to our podcast listeners, um, as Allison said, please reach out to her. She knows her stuff. Um, and like she said, get ahead of the, get ahead of the curve. So, um, if you have questions, reach out to her, reach out to us. We would love to hear from you.